a remote fantastical kingdom far from Europe's chancelleries of power. An ancient castle where secrets are walled up. An unpopular monarch on the eve of his coronation. A ruling class of plotters and would-be usurpers. And a gentleman adventurer on holiday. No, not Ruritania in the 19th century, but the United Kingdom in the 21st. Stein's new book, The Prisoner of Windsor, is a contemporary inversion of Anthony Hope's classic, The Prisoner of Zender. In the original, an English gentleman on vacation is called upon to stand in for his lookalike, the King of Ruritania, at his coronation. Over a century later, a Ruritanian on vacation in London is called upon to return the favour and stand in for an Englishman in an absurd, fantastical kingdom where Brexit never quite happened. Plots are afoot. The Prisoner of Windsor by Mark Stein. Available in hardback and digital editions or for a personally autographed copy, go to steinonline.com. The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. August 4th, 2023. It is 8 p.m. British Summer Time, 9 p.m. Central European Time, which is where I happen to be, 10 p.m. in, I'm not even going to try and say it, Kiev. Kiev. It's it's good to say Kiev. 10 p.m. in Kiev and Moscow, now in the same time zone, if not the same country. 10.30 p.m. in Tehran for all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone. Midnight 45 in Kathmandu for all you Iranians who move to Nepal to check out the quarter hour time zone. 3 a.m. in Singapore, 3 a.m. in Honkers, 3 a.m. in Perth, I'm sorry about that. 5 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne, I'm still kind of a little bit sorry. And 7 a.m. Uh, in Auckland and a somewhat more civilised hour for the Kippers and Kedgeri in His Majesty's dominions across the Pacific. It is great to be back with you. I'm Mark Stein, in case you don't remember, it's been a long time. Uh, Thank you to Laura Rosen-Cohen and Andrew Lawton for holding down the fort, even if Lawton had to get out his Barbie and Ken dolls to do it. I haven't seen the Barbie movie and I have no plans to. As you know, it was touch and go whether I would be cleared to fly to the Mark Stein cruise, but I cranked myself up. The spirit was willing, the flesh was decomposing. Nevertheless, I got there and I held it together until the very final day of the cruise when my body basically imploded. Uh, I reminded myself of all those centenarians 
uh, I've occasionally referenced over the years, the guys who focus so much on making it to their 100th birthday, they then die five days after blowing out the candles. That was a bit like me. Um, as you know, my idea of a medical bulletin is that of uh, His Late Majesty George V. The King's life is drawing peacefully toward its close. And I don't really like to get any more specific than that. But I have something fairly major and basic that's wrong with me, and they haven't managed to find the point of my insides uh, that is causing it. Um, but... Um, uh, well, it can't go on. I mean, it can go on, but at a certain point, it would mean I won't be going on. Uh, but anyway, enough of that. I've been greatly enjoying uh, the company of Italians. I like all the smoking at the sidewalk cafes. Lots to be said for it. Italians have much better health outcomes uh, than Americans. And um, I think, uh, I think uh, the prohibitions on smoking are actually partly to do with that. Uh, while I'm riling people up, my old editor Ian Irvin from The Independent and The Sunday Telegraph had a theory that Americans had invented the concept of the girl and he was going to work it up into a book. I don't know that he ever did. I think girls can be pretty, pretty girls. But watching the girls perambulate across the Piazza Unita d'Italia every morning, uh, it seems to me that Italian girls are not just pretty, but beautiful. They have the beauty that with most races only comes with age. Maybe I should work that up into a book. I think someone, did someone pitch me a book the other day? Or was this just a nightmare? I have the vague memory that someone wanted me to follow Mike Pence around and do a 2024 Inside the Winning Campaign diary. I think I'll tell them I'd much rather do the Mark Stein book of Eurototty. Uh, okay, enough of that. Let us get to your questions. Let's see, what do we got here? Frank Gallenstein, or Gallenstein says, Welcome back, Mark. Love your book. I'm assuming that's a reference to The Prisoner of Windsor. And uh, if you haven't yet got a copy, as Frank has, take that endorsement to the bank and order up your copy uh, immediately. Uh, Frank continues, count me among the many who have recently become captured by talk about the weakness of the prosecution's case in the latest Trump indictment. But thank you for bringing me back to earth by reminding me this is not a normal justice system. And your comments about no one in their right mind wanting to serve in a second Trump administration is spot on. Also, I was actually just thinking of fellas like Peter Navarro, uh, right? Uh, I mean, the thing about Trump is if you turn on Trump, if you there's a lady on The View uh, that uh, I always quite liked and I thought she was uh, very effective in whatever, you know, she was communications director or some such for Trump, and then she turned against him and she got a gig on The View. Uh, you'll be rewarded if you turn on Trump. If you stick with Trump, you'll be broke. And I was thinking of poor old Peter Navarro, who's uh, now tied up. I mean, people, what astonishes me really is because if, you know, Peter Navarro, whom I like very much, if he had asked me about this a decade ago, I would have told him no one in their right mind has anything to do with the federal justice system because it's a racket. 
um, you know, uh, it's a perversion of the uh, common law system. It's not really a respectable one. Um, and, uh, and all that happens is the uh, Federal Department of Justice has unlimited time and money uh, to bring to screwing you over. So you're going to wind up broke. And, you know, if you're like 28 and you attract there, I, I was still relatively youthful when I attracted the attention of the District of Columbia Superior Court, uh, which uh, Michael Mann picked to sue me in. Uh, so I thought, oh, okay, this is going to uh, cost millions of dollars. But, you know, when it's all over, I'll be able to claw that back because I will still have the healthy glow of late middle age on my face. I didn't realize, you know, it was going to go on for, what are we now? I think about to begin the 13th year of this bloody thing. And, you know, when you get up there in years, as Peter Navarro, uh, I'm not being ungallant or anything, but he's had a rich and full life. And like General Flynn, he now faces the likelihood of being reduced to penury at a time when it's actually very difficult uh, to make up that money. That's one of the big, that's one of the uh, many evil aspects of uh, the system. Um so yeah, it's not it's not worth pretending that this is a normal legal process that Trump is ensnared in. Um, so people even so the thing about this, let's assume that Trump wins the nomination and then wins the general election next year. So if you are invited to serve in a Trump administration, sometimes you get asked to do these things and you don't particularly want to do them, but you're a dutiful citizen and you feel you have to answer the call. But in this case, it's like if you're serving in a Trump administration, you're basically guaranteed that you're going to end your life broke because they're not going to forgive you for it. Um, in times like these, continues Frank, I'm reminded of Rush and his advice to his audience that he would inform us when it's time to give up, and that would be never. Uh, no, I think I think Rush's line. We had this on the show the other day. Uh, is that he'll let you know when it's time to panic. You say in that light, who is your most preferred candidate among those running? Well, um, I I think Trump got screwed over in November uh, 2020. And that for that reason, he is entitled to uh, his revenge, if he can get it. Now, I haven't liked the Trump campaign so far. I think he needs a second act. I've said this, uh, I've said this before. He's not going to, you know, it's, it's difficult. You can't run as the out, he can't do a 2016 campaign in 2024. Uh, that's just not how it operates. So he needs a second act. And it's not clear to me he's surrounded by people who can give him a second act. But he certainly uh, has been treated disgracefully. Uh, and in that sense, uh, I, am, I think he's entitled to try and get his revenge. And that's what Republican primary voters want. Uh, he's, he's actually got something that he didn't have in 2016 until very, very late in the day. But if you recall, everybody kept talking about in 2016, Trump's ceiling. Trump's ceiling was way lower eight years ago than it is 
uh, right now. He's got a he's got a majority in almost all these polls of Republican primary voters who back him and they want him to run. That's partly because DeSantis, I think DeSantis has not been a sure-footed candidate. He may be a competent governor and all the rest of it. But he hasn't actually been a very good candidate. Then there's all the other fellas. Most of those fellas are people I wouldn't give the time of day to like Asa Hutchinson and Mike Pence, because I think with Mike Pence, I don't think real men run against their own president, which is what Vice President Pence is doing. Last time round, he was on the ticket with Trump. He's now running against him. Um, I don't think that's a good thing to do, uh, regardless of whether you like Pence or not, because what it means is he, he can't square the circle. He keeps trying to say, oh, Ah, uh, the first three years of the Trump-Pence administration were fabulous. And then, you know, something happened and blah, blah, blah. You can't make, you can't sell that. And who else is there? Nikki Haley, I never believe a word she says. She's almost like a parody of um, the inauthentic uh, presidential candidate. I quite like that guy, uh, Ramaswamy. I think I, I mentioned I had dinner with him. And Tucker... Uh, last year or whenever it was and I'd never really had it I had no idea who he was but he, he was a very engaging person at dinner um, but you know basically I think Trump is the, the people last time right 28 years ago people kept expecting Trump's bubble to burst and I remember saying very early on to uh, my late friend Alan Combs that it wasn't going to burst and uh, I don't know what people get, people get what's going on here, that America in 2023 is a racket. It's not your constitutional republic that the constitutional guys like to wave that uh, constitution about. That's all, that's dead. You don't have equality before the law. So it doesn't matter if you've got a great constitution, if you have no equality before the law. And in this, I was interested, I can't remember where I read this, but someone said that, you know, Trump should uh, stop going along with all this. Not, you know, he gets indicted every week. There's some guy on Twitter did a very good thing. He showed that every time there's a, develop, a potentially significant development in the Hunter Biden case, uh, the following day, Trump gets either gets indicted afresh for something entirely new or they add additional charges to some existing indictment so that basically <laughs> the more news hunter biden makes the more indictments trump gets and he goes along to these courthouses and he stands there and he plays along with it and he pleads not guilty in georgia the sheriff has said that trump's going to be treated like any other uh, accused criminal and they're going to have the mugshot. So in other words, the Democrats will have their campaign ad uh, for the next whatever it is, year and a quarter, uh, and Trump will, uh, they'll have the Trump mugshot. I think Trump at this stage, American justice is crap. It's total crap. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's corrupt. It's a lousy, stupid. I can't stand these legal scholars. And believe me, I've spent millions of dollars 
this last decade on lawyers. I know a little something about American lawyers, and it's all very fascinating to me to hear them talk about this, game that out, you know. All the way of gaming out that these guys do always takes three, five, seven years, because that's the way they run up the tab. So, um... I don't, I, I, I think, but at, at heart, the, fault, the faulty premise is pretending that this is a fair system. The Democrats know it's not. The Democrats know if you bring, and this is the jurisdiction I'm being tried in, they know if you bring a case in the District of Columbia that uh, 11 members of the jury will be hardcore Democrats and the 12th guy will be a guy from the Socialist Workers Marxist Leninist Party. That's your jury pool in the District of Columbia. So this isn't anything real. And, and Trump at this stage, because what's going on is so absurd, uh, he should just, he should, I think, decline to recognize it. And if they want to get him in jail, then they should, uh, you know, he should actually challenge the dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt Federal Department of Justice to take it to the next level and send the SWAT team round to drag him out at, at Mar-a-Lago because he's got nothing to lose at this stage. Um, you know, it, it, for, for a start, there's something wrong in uh, the incumbent guy sicking his Department of Justice on his political opponent in next year's election. Uh, that's wrong. But beyond, um, be, beyond that basic uh, uh, flaw with it, they've got so little of a case, they're now basically inventing crime. It's not a crime to claim... It's not a crime to claim uh, your opponent didn't really win the election and you're the real winner. Stacey Abrams became a national celebrity on the Democrat side of the ticket by doing just that. Hillary Clinton said that Trump was an illegitimate president after she lost in 2016. Uh, Jimmy Carter... Uh, said that the Russians had installed Trump as president. Nobody's prosecuting Stacey Abrams. Nobody's prosecuting Hillary Clinton. Nobody's prosecuting Jimmy Carter. Because Americans, your justice system is crap. It is part of the end stage of your republic, which is going down the toilet of history. Uh, Drew Weber says, hello, Mark. So, uh, so I'm, I'm being serious here. I think Trump needs to up the ante instead of, what is it? It's a great American expression. If you're not on, what is it called? If you're not on offense, you're on defense. Is that the American expression? Well, Trump here, for all the, you know, uh, the tweeting and all whatever he's doing now, uh, is basically playing defense. He needs to go on offense. He's going to say he needs to do a how many divisions... Um, has Merrick Garland approach to it. And so, no, I'm not, I, you know, uh, so which, uh, if it's Wednesday, it must be Georgia. You know what? I don't think I'm going to do this one where the stupid sheriff says he's going to uh, put me in a mugshot. Uh, I think I'll sit this one out and he can uh, send uh, a posse round to Mar-a-Lago and see how that uh, works out uh, for him. Uh, Drew Weber says, hello, Mark. All the best in your recuperation. 
The Onion continues to unfold, revealing the corruption of Biden, Inc. The only thing yet missing are videos of the president and Hunter taking bribes. Wouldn't make any difference. No one would ever see them because everything's corrupt. Everything is corrupt now. And they would not, you could have video of Hunter. He's lying there. He's with his underage hooker and his crack pipe. And uh, a big shot Chinaman walks in with a big fancy seven figure, eight figure bribe to give to the big guy. Uh, and nothing would come over it. However, the Dems and the media would parrot the line, says Drew Weber, from Groucho Marx. Who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? Now, there will be plenty of foot dragging, as I suspect others from both sides of the aisle had their hands in the Ukraine cookie jar. The swamp jumped to impeachment when Trump dared mention Biden corruption in his phone call with Zelensky. The swamp will now do whatever it takes to prevent Trump from taking another swing as the next president. Your thoughts? Well, as, I, and, uh, as I've just said, he's, he's got something which he didn't have until, you know, I think the last few weeks or whatever it was against Trump and Carly, against Cruz and Carly Fiorino or whoever it was eight years ago. He's already got you know, months to go before Iowa and New Hampshire, he's already got a majority of the primary vote. And, and people, get, people get the uh, essential uh, inequity. Democrats talk about equity all of the time. But in fact, what it means is, is if you're in the club, like Hillary, Stacey Abrams... Jimmy Carter, Hunter, you can do anything you want and you'll never be called on it. Whereas uh, for, for the other guys, you'll be ruined and they get the injustice of that. Um, so uh, the, the sophisticated thinking is that the um, Republicans, uh, the Democrats want the Republicans to nominate Trump because he's guaranteed to lose. I don't actually buy that. I think they're pretty confident they can take out DeSantis or Asa Hutchinson or Nikki Haley or Mike Pence or whoever it is. Because the interesting thing is how brazen they've gotten. Um, you know, it's like if you if you had managed to pull off what they pulled off in 2020, you might think, ah, okay, well, maybe we'll sit this one out. But they don't need to sit this one out because they're pretty confident uh, that in the end they can get away with it again. And that's, and that's what's likely to happen. And they're assisted by the fact uh, that a significant chunk, you know, 40% of the Republican Party's big shots... Buy, essentially buy into their narrative. Paul Ryan is running around giving interviews saying it would be, oh, it would be terribly bad for the country if, uh, if Trump were to become president again. Don't you think it would be terribly bad for the country if Paul Ryan were ever to be heard from again? Because Paul Ryan is the guy who scuttled the will of the people uh, in those first two years of the Trump administration. George Pereira says, Mark, I've not been able to wrap my head around the idea that the same people who are violently pro-mutilation of children, pro-drag queen story hour, pro-pornography in grade school, pro-treating small American towns 
as being filled with ignorant, toothless hillbillies, pro-jailing the unvaxxed as murderous criminals, yet treat President Trump as the second coming of Satan. Their lives are filled with a mindless hatred for anyone who disagrees with them, and all of the things they say they believe in are themselves profoundly evil. How can anyone live being consumed with such evil? Well, I do think, you know, uh, the condescension, say, of, uh, you know, urban liberals toward, what did you call them, ignorant, toothless hillbillies, that's sort of... Uh, the traditional urban country divide that goes back across many different societies uh, for hundreds and thousands of years. Um, but the most of the other stuff is actually evil. The, what is fascinating to me is the way the Democrats and other organs of society have mainstreamed the slicing off of schoolgirls' breasts. That's actually a, an astonishing achievement. And as I said, it's like that internet meme, whatever it is. It's from some comedy show or whatever. I don't really know where it came from. But anyway, it's the, the two German guys uh, sitting around wondering, are visa baddies? You know, uh, that's what I think has to be the susceptibility here, because it's not... I've been trying to get this across without much success, <laughs> judging from some of the mail for the last three weeks, but trannies have been around for thousands of years uh, in, in the theatre uh, until relatively recently. It was quite... It was standard, in fact, for the men to play the women's roles um, because it was thought immoral for a woman to appear on stage. So if you have, if you go see at the Globe Theatre uh, in London, where they do Shakespeare's plays in the style in which they were put on in Shakespeare's day, the men today play the women's parts. So we've had, uh, you know, uh, uh, transvestism of one degree or another throughout human history, basically. Um, and uh, it's perfect. by definition, most of the practitioners understood that they were on the fringe of society. Uh, so what's happened in the last 10 years is that America, American institutions, the American state, the American media, uh, the American medical profession, uh, the American educational establishment, the guy who purports to be the American president... Uh, Joe Biden, uh, have all weaponized this against millions and millions of uh, ordinary school children. It's a great, it's a, in a way that's never been done. And it reminds me, I don't want to go all sort of Godwin's law this early in the show, but it actually does remind me of the salient fact of the Third Reich. There had been anti-Semitism in Europe, uh, to one degree or another, for as long as anybody uh, could remember, and there would be property laws in certain countries restricting the rights of Jews to own this or that, and there would be ghettos in some places, and uh, there would be the occasional pogrom. And at the same time, you had things where 
his her majesty his his majesty's government in london uh made a jew a marquis and then made him viceroy of india the marquis of reading that's to say <laughs> the british government was so culturally confident a century ago it sent out a jew <laughs> to run the largest territory the territory with the most muslims on earth <laughs> so you imagine that now uh what's pakistan and bangladesh and the muslim population of india and they say oh by the way we're sending out a jew to come and lord it over to you that's how culturally confident well i happen to be in you know trieste uh when the Habsburgs decided they wanted to make Trieste a world-class port, what did they do? They decided they needed to get a bunch of Jews to move here because they looked at Liverpool, they looked at Hamburg, they looked at Bordeaux, and they worked out that every successful world-class port basically had uh, smart Jews running everything. And so uh, they encouraged all these Jews to move to Trieste. And alas, uh, they had such a grand time in Trieste that they uh, failed to get out in time uh, when the prevailing winds changed in the 1940s. But um, what am I talking about here? Oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, Godwin's Law. Yeah, so here's the thing. They, they'd, all, they'd had all this, uh, you know, anti-Semitism uh, tucking along at the same kind of level, century in, century out. And suddenly, uh, the Third Reich weaponizes it and decides it's going to kill millions of Jews. It didn't turn. It had been there for a couple of millennia and it didn't turn genocidal until uh, the Third Reich came along in the 1930s. And I think about this, I'm not, as I said, I'm not interested in going Godwin's Law this early in the day, but I think something in, you know, there's been transgenderism out there on the fringes to one degree or another, but only America suddenly decided to advance to slicing off the breasts of middle school girls. You know, you can't undo that. And yet, if you object to it, uh, you're the hater. You're the hater. It's extremely weird. Uh, that, uh, um, as you can tell, I'm having a bit of difficulty with my voice. So let's pause for a brief uh, musical respite, and I'll have a couple of minutes uh, to get a glass of water. Um, while I've been non-compass mentis, <laughs> both Sinead O'Connor and Tony Bennett died. Mr. Bennett nearly made it to a hundred and can claim as a few other near centenarians can uh, that he died as an A-list celebrity. Uh, Miss O'Connor barely made it to half that age, and when she died, uh, everyone played her breakthrough hit as if it had all been downhill from there. She moved back to London last year, and she'd been in touch with a mutual friend, which made me think things had maybe stabilised a little, but it is hard to overcome the death of a child 
and even harder to overcome the suicide of a child. I had the pleasure of uh, Sinead's company a few times over the years. She was obviously a fragile and damaged person, but she was serious and perceptive and intelligent about the music, as we will hear. At one point, I knew her older brother, Joseph O'Connor, a little better. He's a novelist. And he used to come on the BBC's Loose Ends, which I used to do with Ned Sherin and Carol Thatcher, Stephen Fry, Emma Freud. And afterwards, we'd all go to the terrible BBC pub, The George. And Joseph, I recall, as a man of conventional literary views, at that time, uh, he was on the board of um, the British Nicaraguan Friendship Society or some such. So he was pro-Sandinista, but he was immensely secure, and so wore the politics lightly. They didn't eat away at him, as he felt all the Pope business did with his sister. So I am inclined to, you know, cut her some slack on the IRA stuff and all the other rubbish. She was just one of those uh, raw talents that the music biz hits full on and leaves for roadkill. As you'll know if you read uh, Laura Rosen-Cohen at Stein Online yesterday, Morrissey... Uh, listed a few of the others, Judy Garland, Amy Winehouse, Whitney Houston. I heard last year, by the way, that Morrissey watches the Mark Stein show, which is odd because I'm Mr. Squaresville. But as square as I am, uh, I still play a lot of Sinead. We play her version of Silent Night most Christmases and her version of Scarlet Ribbons and of my all-time favorite Irish folk song, She Moved Through the Fair. A lot of good things in her catalogue. Uh, One of the last times I saw her, she was singing Gershwin with Larry Adler, the great great, uh, mouth organist whom you may have heard talking about time on my hands on our Serenade radio show a fortnight or so back. He and Sinead were doing a rather tricky number from Porgy and Pess. And he said to her at one point, talk to Stein about it. He knows more about Gershwin than I do, which... uh, was completely ridiculous because he'd been a good pal of both George and Ira. And as a matter of fact, whenever he did a Gershwin evening, he wore George's tails, which he'd been given by Ira after George George's death. Anyway, I thought Sinead had really made the song work for her. Larry wasn't quite so sure, and he wondered whether she mightn't have been a little out of her depth. Uh, he was appearing on my BBC show. And I said how much I liked Sinead's track. And he didn't disagree, but he didn't match my enthusiasm. So it was a pre-taped interview. And about half an hour after he'd left, I was in the BBC control room and the telephone rings and it's Larry Adler for me. And he says that on reflection, he felt he wasn't quite rhapsodic enough about Sinead. And could I edit him into sounding more ardent about her performance? And I said I knew how to edit out things. You wish you hadn't said, but I wasn't so sure how you went about editing in things that you had not, in fact, said at all. But I'd give it my best, and I put the phone down. And about 10 minutes later, the BBC telephone rings again, and this time it's George Martin, the producer of the record, and of the Beatles and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, and uh, and he says, uh, look, Mark, I hear you're having Larry Adler on the show today, and I'm sure you'd love to get him to trash the Sinead crack, uh, track and make all the gossip columns, but really I'd rather you didn't. And it's an hour or two to airtime, and I'm really busy, so I say to him rather peremptorily, look, I really love the track. It's all you guys who seem to be riddled with doubts about it. Could, so could you just leave me the hell out of all this? It'd be much appreciated. Uh, 
and the years roll by and I still love this record Sinead O'Connor with Larry Adler from Porgy and Bess My man's gone now Ain't no use listening For his tired footsteps Climbing up the O'Connor sings Porgy and Bess. Words by Dubose Haywood, music by George Gershwin, alongside Sinead at Abbey Road that day on the harmonica, George Gershwin's old friend Larry Adler with George Martin and the orchestra. A very sincere performance by Sinead 
as was almost everything she did. Mark Stein's Clubland Q&A live around the planet, remembering Sinead O'Connor and Tony Bennett. Here's Signor Benedetto with a song of his people, but an arrangement of my people by the greatest of all Canadian arrangers, Robert Farnan. Light him up, Tony. <laughs> DiCapua, DiCapua, uh, Giovanni Capuro, and Alfredo Mazzucci. And if you heard our Seminade radio show on the subject, you'll know that that last name is the reason why a song written in 1898 will be in copyright till the middle years of the 21st century. Tony Bennett with orchestra arranged and conducted by Robert Farnan, uh, recorded in London in 1972. And if you go on the internet, uh, on YouTube and whatever, you'll find a gazillion comments from people going, Ha! What a putz! Tony Bennett likes to pretend he's Italian, and he doesn't even know it's O Sole Mio. He keeps singing O Sole Mia, the schmuck. Uh, well, no, uh, Signor Capuro's lyric is not Italian, it's Neapolitan. 
And in Neapolitan, the word spelt M-I-O is pronounced Mia. As if it's got a, let me see, a Y-U-H at the end. Mia. Uh, Naples is in southern Italy. And uh, Antonio Benedetto's family comes from about two hours south of there. So he knows whereof he sings. Unlike the morons online scoffing at his uh, stupidity. Mark Stein's Clubland Q&A live around the planet. We're tipping our hat to Sinead O'Connor and Tony Bennett. We'll have uh, more from each a little later. It is uh, 17 to 9. British summertime, a little behind, a lot ahead, according to where you chance to be on this turbulent earth. Tell you what, let us get back to... Uh, your question. Scott Barnhouse says, Mark, I pray for your health and success in all of your various free speech uh, cases. Uh, You need your health to continue with uh, your fight for our freedoms. And I think I speak for the audience to say that we appreciate you and what you do. My question is, you've repeatedly stated that you may have to take your case against Ofcom all the way to the European Court of Human Rights. And you say this as if you think you have a good chance of finally winning there. Given how the entirety of the EU seems to be working to censor opinions that they don't like with formal laws restricting what can be posted on social media platforms, what makes you optimistic that this body may give a fair hearing to a freedom of speech claim? Thank you, Mark, for all that you do. From your insights to your strong defense of free speech and rationality, we love you and wish you Godspeed. Well, I don't think you should be getting into big first principle cases unless you're willing to take them to the ultimate court of appeal. I think I've said I'm not really a European Court of Human Rights guy. In fact, I've argued that uh, the United Kingdom should withdraw from that. But I think you have to take, be willing to take it uh, as far as it, as far as you can, as far as it goes, and I'm not interested in legal sophistry. It's one reason why I loathe being in American courts. I like big, bright first principles, and the big, bright first principles here seem to me to be incredibly clear. What you're always looking for is a judge who's basically. I'll tell you why I loathe the DC Court of Appeal, for example, they took three years to rule on an interlocutory appeal. Quite disgraceful, actually. As I said, when I testified at the United States Senate, uh, their terms should not have been renewed. Not for three years. For an an interlocutory appeal is one that's in the middle of a case. So we're all waiting for you guys to rule so we can get on with it. And they didn't. And the reason they didn't was because politically they were in favor of convicting me and my co-defendants, but they couldn't work out a, a, a legal reasoning that would enable them to do that. That's what took them three years. It's truly pathetic. Um, and uh, yeah, I have no great confidence in the state of the judiciary. Um, in I mean, America's the worst, but you know, some of those bad American habits have contaminated. Uh, the uh, Court of King's Bench in Alberta, as uh, Josh Passel was just mentioning in our comments earlier today, I think it was. So, no, I'm not a big fan of the European Court of Human Rights, but you got it. You, you know, whatever courtroom you find yourself in, you got to be prepared to take it all the way. Norman Fenton, if you uh, uh, 
Don't follow it. Norman's been on the show, in fact, and is a most uh, interesting person uh, on the new world in which we live. Norman writes, hope you're... And he's also posted, aside from that, he's also posted um, uh, some pictures of himself. He seems to have an an erring instinct for all the most attractive women, women on the boat, if you look at his Twitter feed. Anyway, Norman says, hope your recovery is going well. It was great to finally meet you in person on the cruise. While it felt good to be with so many awake people, my question is, did you feel there were any new ideas arising from the discussions that are really going to help challenge the globalists' relentless drive toward their new world order? And even if there were, how do we really break through and even reach the normies who are still totally unaware of what is going on? For example, you have 363,000 Twitter followers. I'll take your word for that. But your tweets seem to get almost no impressions. Well, I've been shadow banned. I think when these things started, both Facebook and Twitter, they were honest. And it was, I used to pay attention to them. And, you know, I think we had links. I think we had some buttons or something that were under each column or whatever at Stein Online because they were honest. So it was interesting to see when you did something that went viral and went everywhere. uh, And, uh, you know, just and anyone could, you know, look at it and see that it had suddenly gone viral. And then one day it all changed. And I became shadow banned. And I think I'm still shadow banned. Probably the best way to get unshadow banned <laughs> would be to have my uh, dear friend Ava Vladinger broke, uh, put in a word with her friend Elon Musk. Um, but absent that, I'm assuming that eventually someone will notice I'm shadow banned and do something about it. That's not the way we're going to win anything. You know, these are controlled conversations. I couldn't care less about things like Twitter and YouTube and Facebook. Um, I'm astonished. I might even have been my interview with Norman. It was probably with Norman or Claire Craig or some other COVID dissenter uh, that got us locked out of our YouTube account. I don't know whether I'm still locked out of it. Don't really care. The the thing is, this is going to have to be fought. We are in 1984 territory. Uh, George Orwell's great insight was that the television that you watch will eventually be able to watch you. And when it does, uh, nothing you do will be out of sight. And I think that's basically the world we're heading into. And that's why it's important uh, for, for those of us who don't, you know, uh, I mean, as I said earlier, I've lost millions and millions and millions fighting this uh, free speech case in Washington, D.C. I don't really have any great ambitions about money or anything like that because it's just going to go on legal fees. So you might as well just say what you like. Um, and I think the uh, the pitch to, to what you call the so-called normies, I think, is not going to be done out in the open on Twitter or on Facebook. But I think, for example, if you look at the COVID vaccines, for example, people have voted with their feet on uh, out in the media 
uh, out in Ofcom control media, oh, but these are uh, bad, you know, uh, the risk of anything happening is extremely rare, blah, 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 blah. But people have stopped, have stopped buying it. They've, uh, the AstraZeneca thing, the great British success story, have we, is there anyone at AstraZeneca we haven't knighted yet? You idiot, Boris. Um, AstraZeneca isn't selling any of its vaccine. It's dud. It's dead. Uh, the, its sales are, are so low now, they're undetectable. There might be some chump living on Rock Hall who, who's still going for his booster shot, but that's the only booster that AstraZeneca is selling. And I, I think it's important to learn from that. It's like if you look at if you look at the great evil Dominion of Canada, where they're still denying medical procedures to people who are unvaccinated. They can do that. But the vaccine world is over in not just insane countries like Switzerland and Scandinavia, but even in nutso jurisdictions like the various parts of the British Isles and elsewhere in His Majesty's dominions. So, yeah, we can do it. You know, we can do it. A lot of the stuff, the flim-flam is a complete, you know, the partisan stuff is rubbish, and I don't go for the, you know, the shallowness of uh, a lot of commentary on these things. But the reality of what's going on uh, gets out, and on, and on certain things like the vaccines, uh, it can it can make a difference. George George Pazin, whom I always assume to be a Quebecer, and so I generally call him George Pazin, uh, says no question today. Just looking forward to hearing Mark's voice. Well, I'm not. Uh, it's uh, it's not in great shape. Uh, I'll say that. Uh, John Cameron says, yay, Mark's back. Yeah, no, my voice isn't in great shape and my back isn't in great shape either, John. So nothing's really working uh, terribly well. Chris Davis says, Mark, what a veritable pleasure it will be to have you back on the airwaves. I sincerely hope the bum ticker permits. The episodes of the Mark Stein Cruise have, of course, been of the usual high watermark. Uh, is that what you want on a cruise? <laughs> How high is that high water mark going to get? Uh, much enjoyed during your hiatus. As it is now de rigueur for Costa and Doc Martens to follow Wicks, Target and Anheuser-Busch in producing advertising material with breast scars, is the tide of ESG-infected woke capitalism becoming irresistible? Profit seems to be an afterthought now, and with BlackRock, State Street, et al. all offering cheap money... For those who worship at the altar of the Church of Woke, does it even matter? I sense the pace at which we are heading off the cliff is hastening. Uh, we need your hemoglobin back firing on all cylinders to help cushion the fall with dark humor and more standing on the truth. Get well soon, Mark. Our family will keep you in our thoughts and prayers. Just on that last point, you know, one of the things I liked uh, and actually was very rewarding for me after talking just the usual partisan knockabout for the most part at Fox News uh, in the last couple of years, was the way uh, my show uh, very quickly made a difference in the UK. Uh, I'm 
proud to have played a part. The £120,000 for victims of the vaccines is a derisory amount, but it's better than nothing. It enabled Charlotte Wright to remain in her house and thus keep her orphaned children with no father in their school and with their friends. So uh, it ensured that she didn't have to move and the children weren't in the position of losing not just their father, but their school friends too. I was pleased to do that. I was pleased to make a difference on some of the grooming gang stuff and get some investigations reopened, uh, mainly out of uh, by embarrassing the constabularies involved. And all the, it was nice to be able. It was nice to be able to do that. But you know, to talk what what uh, Chris is talking about here is that. Costa, which is a crappy coffee chain in the UK, and Doc Martens, who make the famous uh, Bother Boots, my uh, assistant Moni, uh, used to wear Doc Martens to work every day. She's the only person I've ever seen who looked good in them. <laughs> um, what was I talking about now? Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the thing about this is I, I, I quoted on air last year sometime, I think it's the Control of Manufacturers Act uh, that the Irish Free State passed in whatever it was, 1936 or some such. And as a result of that, uh, Guinness, which is the most Irish product of all, uh, Guinness looked at their bottom line and decided, okay, screw this and move their head office from Dublin to London. Because that's how companies behave then. They just thought about the bottom line. They thought about the company. And as Chris says, now we have people, they don't, they don't even care. They don't even care. These guys, you know, Bud Light and all the... They do the same thing all over again. But, but, it's, but they can't all do it. The interesting thing is that it's one thing, if you make, say, a, uh, a product that people like and you happen to have trans, uh, pro-trans advertising, people will, you know, go along with that up to a point. But if your actual product becomes crapped out by this stuff, as it is in the motion picture industry, with the exception of Oppenheimer and Barbie, uh, supposedly, but if you look at all the flops that Disney has had, for example, Disney had a long dry patch between, basically between bed knobs and broomsticks and uh, the Little Mermaid. Uh, they had a 20-year dry patch, aside from a couple of lame-o Herbie the Volkswagen sequels. And they get, And they're doing the same thing again, but they're not even doing it you know, out of any genuinely mystifying inability to figure out how to make movies. They're consciously wrecking storytelling. And at that point, that's going to be the, 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 the most uh, important part of any society is the stories it tells itself. Right now, the stories are in the hands of corporations and the corporations stink at storytelling, and that is going to come back to bite them. Greg Warren says, Good morning, Mark, from a somewhat chilly Sydney. It's early in Sydney. What is it? Uh, Coming up to 8 a.m. there. I noted this week 
that the uh, microbes from Just Stop Reason had installed themselves on the roof of Squishy Rishi's sub-checkers pad. While this is amusing, is there any hope of wiping away the traitorous Tories without installing Labour's equally vile apparatchiks? British conservatism currently seems to resemble the Yugoslavian partisans during the Nazi occupation in that they seem to hate each other ever so slightly more than they hate their occupiers. <laughs> I am not optimistic. Actually, that's while I'm talking Trieste. I should, the famous, the Second World War ended in Trieste. After Italy uh, switched sides, uh, the Germans seized Trieste and installed a German administration there. Then, of course, they uh, went down the toilet and they had two... Uh, forces closing in on them. They had uh, Tito's Yugoslav partisans from the north and uh, and then uh, the British, as the Germans saw it, um, from the west. And the Germans refused to surrender to the Yugoslavs and said they were, would only surrender to the British. In fact, the British just to be clear, were New Zealand forces. So Tito was totally insulted. He just say, what kind of thing is this? They, they won't surrender to Slavs, but they're going to surrender to Kiwis? What the hell is that about? Anyway, thank you for my, reminding me of that, uh, Greg. The, the, you're actually doing the talk. One thing I have learned over the years, because of all the people I have known going back decades, who started in the conservative trenches and, that at a, and then at a certain point, oh, in the end, we're not really that conservative. Max Boot at the Wall Street Journal, Bill Crystal at the uh, Weekly Standard, and then uh, Boris Johnson as His Britannic Majesty's Prime Minister. Basically, you know, the minute people start talking like Theresa May did 20 years ago, oh, we have to detoxify the Tory brand because we're seen as the nasty party. You know, you're basically telling people you don't believe in anything. And I think the, the interesting thing is that, a, 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 uh, that, you know, you say Labour would be equally vile. No, the Tories are worse. Because Labour run on what they're going to do, just as the Democrats run on what they're going to do in the United States. Whereas, you know, you have all these people, like these open borders lunatics, like the late John McCain, say, in America, who would be as, you know, this, if the Senate campaign uh, got a little closer uh, than he was anticipating, he'd suddenly start talking about building fences and all the rest of it. And then the day after Election Day, the day after the Tuesday in November, the Wednesday morning in November, he'd forget about all that stuff. Um, you know, I don't, I'm sick of that. I'm sick of that. It better, it's sometimes it's better to have, as happened in Canada in the 90s, to have a uh, a a uh, liberal um, government, but an effective conservative opposition that keeps certain ideas in play, and that the government is obliged to meet halfway, uh, in order that it doesn't uh, the the guys don't start peeling off votes. 
you know, the, the Conservative Party, I want it to die. I don't really, I want it to die. I mean, it's had, the thing about it is this is one of those huge pendulum swing things where it would be difficult for them to win simply because it's whatever it is, the fourth election, it would be the fourth election. Very difficult to do. Because it's so it's like the Blair years from 1997 to 2010, the Tory years from 79 to 97, the pendulum swings. So what matters is what you bloody well did during the 18 years you had, 79 to 97, during the 13 years you had, 97 to 2010, during the whatever it is, 14, 15 years, these useless bloody awful, third-rate, contemptible people who don't believe in anything. You know, uh, now they're all doing... The, it's fascinating, this whole GB News thing. Uh, they're all going on... They go on TV every hour and host shows uh, <laughs> in which <laughs> claiming to be opposed to this and opposed to that. They voted for it all. You know... <laughs> uh, Jacob rees on didn't discover he opposed it until uh, he uh, was actually uh, booted out of the cabinet by Rishi. So that's how principled uh, these buffoons are uh, on on that uh, on all that rubbish. Um, Kelly Harbison says, "Welcome back, Mark. Don't overdo. <laughs> Do you think that the importation of needy third worlders?" is indeed a means to a permanent Democrat presidency, as has been suggested. Yeah, it's not very difficult, this. Um, you know, the I said this 20 years ago. Uh, the Democrats think they're importing new voters. The Chamber of Commerce Republicans think they're importing cheap workers. The... Democrats are right and the Republicans are fools to go along with it. And you can say the same in equivalent situations in all other, in all other countries. Uh, it, it's there's no economic logic for it um, whatsoever. 40% uh, of all the jobs on the planet are about to be rendered obsolete by technology. Certainly nobody needs unskilled workers who require far more in welfare and special education uh, facilities than they ever contribute in taxes. But it serves the needs of the uh, Democrats and it's in, in terms of the transformation of America. And, it, so, and the half-wit Chamber of Commerce Republicans are stupid enough to think it serves uh, the, um, the, their interests too. Jamie Marsh says, with big pharma, big tech, big government, and big unions working against us all these years, who would have predicted that it would be big trans that would finish us off? Uh, what say you? I don't really think it is. I think, I don't think it is a tranny thing. I think... The left just uses very effectively what it has to hand. And so if it hadn't been trans, it would have been something else. As we saw with the COVID, the minute the COVID came breezing in, uh, the Democrats started thinking, hmm, 
hmm, what could we use this for that would work to our advantage? And basically, everybody else uh, got uh, suckered. Uh, Scott Scherzer says, uh, Dear Mark, it's so good to hear that you are fit enough for today's Q&A, or are you actually feigning sickness? So you can stay in Trieste as we are bombarded with new forms of insanity on a daily basis, from drag queen story hour to critical race theory to transgenderism at Al. It is no longer a secret if it ever was that the Western elite wish to tear down civilization as we know it. Since they are totally incapable of doing anything for themselves, such as landscaping, plumbing, cooking, etc., how do they think they will function once we have descended into total misery? Are they counting on AI to take care of these needs? Or will they hold illegal aliens hostage and force them into indentured servitude? Please take good care of yourself as plummeting into the cultural abyss just wouldn't be the same without you. Thing is, at the moment, the left and the various other forces out there have the same enemies. Uh, they won't always. And the, you know, Islam, for example, is happy to make common cause with the left. Uh, when it comes to weakening and hollowing out what remains of Western civilization. But who are you going to bet on once uh, the, guy, the Western civilization guys are gone? So once it's a battle uh, between uh, people who uh, think that, uh, you know, sex, biological sex, has been abolished and boys can be girls and girls can be boys and the sooner we all mix them up, the better or some guys who are serious about what they're doing. Uh, you know, Islam all generally winds up where, where it takes over, like in uh, Alexandria, which used to be a super gay town, a super Jewish town, very multicultural, very diverse. Islam became king on a field of corpses. There's no reason. It's already happening in whatever it's called, Hamtrak, Michigan, which is... Uh, actually sort of surrounded by Detroit, I think, on all sides, but is a separate municipality. And uh, all the LGBTQ crowd, are, but we celebrated you uh, when you became the first Muslim council. We thought, oh, that was great. We've got all these Muslims on the council. And now all the Muslims on the council have said, uh, okay, now we control the council. We're not going to do any of this LGBTQ stuff. Yeah, you know, the, the future belongs to the guys who are most serious about that. And these guys, uh, and in the rubble that the left have made, uh, there will be opportunities for uh, serious people. Uh, tell you what, a little bit, I'm losing my voice here, a little bit more music for you on our Clubland Q&A. We're remembering... Sinead O'Connor and uh, Tony Bennett. And one day, I would say 30-something years ago, my assistant, uh, Moni, who's Ball for Boots, who's Doc Martens, I mentioned uh, a little while back. Uh, Moni came in and held up a CD. <laughs> Sinead O'Connor's Made a Standards album, she said. Oh, God. God almighty, I groaned, imagining something in the vein of, I think it was Robert Palmer's that was going around at that time. I don't think Rod Stewart had yet begun his Rod Stewart Sings Every Single Song You've Ever Heard Of in One Take series. Um, but anyway, Moni said, no, no, you'll like this one. And as she invariably is, Moni was quite right. This wasn't the usual elderly rockers 
Midlife Crisis Standards album, Sinead made this as the follow-up to her breakthrough album, I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got. You can imagine how thrilled the record company was about that, but as with almost everything else she did, it was completely sincere. She described this album as the songs that made me want to become a singer. And a lovely selection they are too. There are tracks from this album you'll hear on our shows to this day. Have you ever heard Sinead Swinging? Uh, well, written for the film Calamity Jane in 1953. Here's a big swinging arrangement by a guy who worked a lot with uh, Tony Bennett. Actually, Tori Zito, in case you're wondering what... Tony Bennett and Sinead O'Connor had in common. Start spreading the news, Sinead.
<laughs> Music by my old chum, Sammy Fain. Words by Paul Francis Webster. My secret love's no secret anymore. Did you know Sinead O'Connor secretly loved Doris Day? I had the pleasure of telling Miss O'Connor how much I love that track and how I like to drive around New Hampshire blasting it out. When you do something for love, you want other people to love it too. And all the music biz wankers, the label execs, the promotional guys won't do that because all they want from you is nothing compares to you still. Sinead ventured into all kinds of music and I hope she knew many of us loved her for that. I worry that she did not. I said, do you want to hear Sinead swinging? Well, she's not really swinging there. Tori Zito and the band are swinging the hell out of that chart. And she's just sitting on top of it doing her thing. And very pleasant it is too. Uh, but here's some real hardcore swinging from Tony Bennett. You know, when that Sinead track came out, I love the way all these know-nothing rock critics said, why would anyone do this to a beloved Doris Day movie ballad? Well, here's another counterintuitive take on a song usually given the ballad treatment. But actually, Mr. Bennett's version is, I think, just right for the manic quality of the lyric. So I talk a little too much and I laugh a little too much. And my voice is too loud when I'm out in a crowd so that people are apt to stare. We have all been there at the end of a love affair. So I walk a little too fast And I drive a little too fast And I'm reckless, it's true But what else can you do? At the end of a love affair So I talk A little too much And I laugh A little too much And my voice is too loud When I'm out in a crowd So that people are apt to stare do they know, do they care that it's only That I'm lonely and low as can be And the smile on my face isn't really a smile at all So I smoke a little too much and I drink a little too much And the tunes I request are not always the best But the ones where the trumpets blast So I go at a maddening pace And I pretend that it's taking a place but what else can you do at the end of a love affair? 
do they care that it's only that I'm lonely and low as can be and the smile on my face isn't really a smile at all so I smoke a little too much and I drink a little too much and the tunes I request are not always the best but the ones where the trumpets blast yeah so I go at a maddening pace and I pretend that it's taking a place but what else can you do at the end of a long So I smoke a little too much and I drink a little too much and the tunes I request are not always the best, but the ones where the trumpets blare. That's the only lasting song by a guy called Edward C. Redding. But if you're only going to leave behind one enduring standard, that is a pretty great one. Tony Bennett with orchestra arranged and conducted by Bob Farnan, recorded in London in 1972. You know, I got an email the other day from a guy who'd bought the Tony Bennett box set with all, uh, whatever it is, 347 albums that he made for Columbia on it. And my correspondent wanted to know what was my favorite of those, you know, 539 albums. And I had to tell him my favorite Tony Bennett album wasn't on that box set because he'd made it in the small window of opportunity when he was on the outs with Columbia. Uh, Clive Davis, the label head, had made Bennett do songs he didn't want to do by Lennon and McCartney and the like, and he called it Tony Bennett Sings the Great Songs of Today. Tony, Tony's problem was that he didn't think they were that great. So much so that he was physically sick before one of the sessions. Tony Bennett pukes the great songs of today. So he and Columbia parted ways for a while. And at a rather dark time in his life, he flew off to London, took up with the wondrous Robert Farnan and made an album that's pure joy. Uh, that terrific piano solo, by the way, I'd forgotten how good that is. It's John Bunch, if memory serves. Stick with Stein Online this weekend, Rick McGuinness on the Movie Beat, Stein Song of the Week, and a little something special for you starting this very weekend. Stay safe, stay free, stay well. Don't leave your heart in San Francisco. It'll just get covered in used needles and human feces. Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.